do here. I kind of want to give a tip of the hat. Jen and I have been working. Uh, he's been doing some training with our staff, helping us in this. And he put me on to Brenda Salter McNeil. And one of the things that she says is, just by calling them to spread over the face of the earth and be fruitful and multiply. And that's not just talking about have a bunch of kids. Fruitfulness biblically is about, is about producing something good and beautiful in the world, Right? Think back to our first sermon in this series, abiding in Christ. Only through me can you bear fruit, right? Like that's not just talking about only through me can you have kids, right? Like only through me can you do what's actually good and virtuous and true and beautiful. So be fruitful and multiply. By spreading that over the face of the earth, it assumes a kind of diversity. Because when you send someone to Siberia and you send someone to the jungles of Brazil, Two very different kinds of culture, two very different kinds of of things are going to be produced by people groups in those places. So right there at the heart of God's created goodness is this idea that human beings would be a people who spread and who create goodness. And that goodness by definition is going to look different. You tracking with that? Okay, so what happens? Instead, what happens is the fall, and the fall happens in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve distrust the word of God, rebel against God, and there's the fall. But really, you see the, the consequences of the fall from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 11 with the, with the depth of sin being the height of the Tower of Babel. This insane project that people do where the, the author is at pains to tell us, you're talking about one people with one language in one city going up to God which is crazy, instead of out over the face of the earth. And they explicitly say, let's try and make our way up to God and make ourselves great so that we will not be spread over the face of the earth. Do you hear this human instinct say, if we all just stay here, if we all do the same thing, if we all speak the same language, if we're all on the same page, then, then, then it'll be less, then we can be like God. Then we can set up a utopia unto ourselves. And God says, this was never my purpose for the human project. This is evil to the core. One of the things that's almost certainly evil about the Tower of Babel is you don't do major construction projects in the ancient world without subjugating someone and enslaving them to build this, right? Like that's almost certainly one of the things going on. Like this project is is nonsense. It's nonsense spiritually. It's nonsense conceptually. And almost certainly how it's being carried out is through some kind of human injustice, okay? It's Tower of Babel. Into that, God speaks in Genesis 12 to, as I lovingly, reverently call him, the rando, Abraham. Abraham is no one. You get the sense like Abraham was chosen precisely because of how random he was. He was a moon worshiper in a middle of nowhere place. God somehow shows up and says, through you and a people that I will create through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Now, this is after God has already judged Babel by doing what? Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might know what happens with the Tower of Babel. Right? God comes down, he judges them, he confuses their language, right? He, there, there's this kind of like forced diversity upon them and he spreads them and he sends them out, right? And then he goes to this one in the middle of nowhere and he says, through you, I will make right what's clearly going wrong in the human project. Through you, what now is characterized only by curse in the human story will become blessing. He says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations, not just the nation that I will create through you, which, which becomes Israel, right? This is not about this crowning of Israel as the only people that God cares about. God says, no, 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 I'm still a global God. I'm still an all people and nations God, 
But there's a work that I'm going to do through you to bless all the people groups of the earth. Fast forward to the New Testament. And you get Acts 2, Pentecost, this amazing moment where after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, you get the sense that kind of the nations are gathered in the, in the capital city of God's people, Jerusalem. Uh, I want to preach all these passages, but I can't. But what happens at Pentecost? A bunch of languages are spoken miraculously such that the people hear the message that God's salvation and redemption has come in Jesus. So God is taking disparate people groups and under the single message and single work of Jesus, he is proclaiming a message that brings salvation and redemption to them all. He is in many ways undoing the curse of Babel and he is fulfilling the promise and blessing that he had guaranteed through Abraham. And he's saying to these people, and what's so interesting, I, I, I will say this, what's so interesting is that Pentecost is this time where the people of God come to the capital city, but, but it's the one time where they're told, bring everyone in your household. Bring, bring any of your servants, bring anyone, such that there's this awareness that Pentecost is this one time in the Jewish calendar where you would have this incredibly multi-ethnic crowd in Jerusalem. And it just so happens that that's the place where God decides to drop in to proclaim this message because guess what happens after those people are in Jerusalem? They're sent out, right? And they're sent out with this new message that was made knowable to them in the beautiful diversity of these many languages to now go and proclaim. What happens though (laughs) is what always happens with human people which is that people say, cool, I have the message, so I'm going to go to people like me, and we're going to start churches with people like me, and we'll do our own thing. Thank you very much. And into that, the Apostle Paul wrote what Jalen just read. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. God wants to take all of that beautiful diversity to bring it together in his church and to bring those who were once far off near to one another. He has broken down the fundamental hostility that should between people because he is renewing the human heart from a heart of selfishness, from a heart of of protection and echo chamber and all of that into, into an expansive heart of love for the other and especially the capital O other. He is turning enemies, not just into friendly acquaintances on Sunday morning. He is turning enemies into brothers and sisters. And so you gotta live like that is what he's saying in Ephesians 2. You got to live like that horizontal reconciliation is real. Because all of it is moving towards this beautiful vision in Revelation 7, which is this vision of where the whole story is moving towards. We're gathered in the new heavens and the new earth are the people of God. But we're told that it's not a, it's not a monochromatic people of God. It's not a homogenous people of God. It's a people of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And do you know what they're singing? They're singing the same song. And what they're singing is, worthy is he. Worthy is he to receive glory and dominion and honor. You see, it's, it's their shared adoration and worship of Jesus that allows their worship to be in one sense the same, unified, 
And yet in all of the beautiful diversity. Because how could the person, John, who's seeing this vision in Revelation, how could he know it was people from every tribe, tongue, nation? How could he know that? Unless they looked different. Unless they sounded different. Unless in some sense, even their cultural garb was different, right? God doesn't want to collapse these things, right? Like, let's be done with the nonsense of of colorblind Christianity, where color and culture doesn't matter. It matters because it matters to God. There's beauty and uniqueness there that from creation he intended. So let's not undo the beauty that God intended there. Let's celebrate it. Okay, all of that is beautiful. I, I doubt very many of you would say, oh, I'm, not, I'm not down with that. It gets really hard though in a, in, a, in a single local community. Let me show you that. Go to Acts 11. Acts 11, verse 19, it'll be on the screen. Scrolly Bible. Okay. Now those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay. Okay, now those who are scattered because of the persecution of, of Stephen. So Stephen, this, this is Acts. This is the, basically a recounting of the earliest decade or so of the life of the church, of Jesus' followers, and, and kind of that first generation of Jesus' followers. And Stephen was the first martyr, the first person explicitly killed for his faith. And he's killed by, by a largely Jewish crowd to whom he is proclaiming the uniqueness of Jesus. And they stone him because he's blaspheming, you know, according to, to their beliefs. So you can imagine that Stephen was a leader in, in the, the early uh, Christian church there and, uh, in Jerusalem. And you can imagine that watching him now be stoned to death. I mean, think of how violent a death that is. The rest of the Christians are kind of like, yeah, we probably shouldn't hang around. This is no longer a place where, where we are going to be free uh, to worship, free, free to do what we need to do. So they scatter. And it says that basically this is a Phoenicia and Cyprus uh, and Antioch. It's kind of a northern movement. So Jerusalem way down south in the Roman Empire. So they're moving up north through there. Do you notice what they do? Speaking the word to no one except Jews. Why? Why do they speak the word to no one but Jews? Why? Somebody give me a thought. Because why? Pastor Minoj. Yeah, because they're culturally the same, right? Not because they're bigots, not because they're horrible people, because that's what you do. You go to Paris, you sit next to someone who's speaking English, you're probably more likely to strike up a conversation with them, right? Like, this is what we do. This, this, is, this isn't the, the most heinous, horrible, sinful thing that's ever happened. They're just naturally moving out of a dangerous situation and where they find people who are culturally linguistically, historically familiar to them, they bold, right? It still takes boldness to preach the gospel to anyone, even if they're culturally near to you, ethnically near to you. By the way, notice, well, no, I'll skip that. But some of them, but there were some of them, verse 20. Verse 20 is one of the turning points in the history of the world, if I could be so bold. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, 
preaching the Lord Jesus. There are some of them. Some of them. Now, why did these some of them talk to Hellenists? And by the way, if you're looking at a physical Bible, which I would encourage you to, the scrolly Bible's lovely, but a physical Bible's better, is if you look in your Bible, my Bible has a little one next to Hellenists. If you go down to the bottom, mine says Greeks. That is Greek-speaking non-Jews. Greek-speaking non-Jews. Why did some of them also speak to Hellenists? We don't know. It doesn't tell us explicitly. I think we might find out as the story goes on. But for some reason, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching. And I love what they preach, preaching the Lord Jesus. Almost always in Acts, right up until this point, when Jesus is referred to, he's, he's referred to as Jesus Christ. A Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus that was particularly understandable within the Jewish worldview, within the Jewish hopes and longings for this messianic figure. Jesus, the Christ, is what's preached uh, to a Jewish audience. Here what we have is that the Lord Jesus is preached. And you'll hear us say this in a hundred different ways as we go through Philippians, because Philippians is, is full of uh, how the gospel enters, particularly into the Greek non-Jewish speaking world of that time. But to say Jesus is Lord is actually a, an incredibly bold, courageous thing to do because at that time, the fundamental belief, especially of a Greek speaking non-Jewish person is not Jesus is Lord, but who is Lord? Caesar is Lord, exactly. This is a dangerous message. This is a seditious message that these some of them are preaching to a culturally, ethnically, historically distant people. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Which I don't think is necessary to say the hand of the Lord wasn't with those who are speaking to only Jews. But there's a reason why we're told that. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord, if you do a study on, on, on the hand of God, which is a weird thing to do, but especially in Acts, the hand of God always stretches forth in critical moments, in turning point moments in the history of God's redemption. God's hand stretches forth. And you see that throughout Acts in a specific way. And here, we, this is actually, um, and then often in Acts, the way that hands are is it's human hands stretching out and commissioning other people to, to do what God has called them to do, to do. Maybe you've been around Christian circles a little bit and you think this is a weird thing we do. It's like a little bit of a weird thing we do is we put hands on people to say we are with you and then to send them out. This is almost like saying God's hand has commissioned these some of them. God's blessing is with this some of them. It's God pushing them into this incredibly crucial turning point, change of strategy that they have chosen. The hand of God was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now verse 22. Gospel gets to a new place, new culture, culturally, ethnically distant people, people in the empire, people who associate with Rome, who were traditionally the oppressors of the Jewish people. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Uh-oh, right? That's what this is saying. It's saying, uh-oh, principal heard what happened, right? Jerusalem at that time is the center of the Christian movement. And now they're hearing, wait, what are these, some of them doing? They're talking to Greek speaking. Oh, that's going to, you know, that's going to create all kinds of trouble, right? You know, it's going to be messy. You know, it's going to be harder. You should probably just talk to the Jews. It's like easier. We, we all kind of speak the same way. We all have the kind of same cultural lingo. We all have the same history. They sent the right guy though. 
They send Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas in Acts is just the sweetheart of the early church. Uh, his name means son of encouragement. It probably wasn't actually his name. It's probably the nickname that he got just because he was a good dude. I, I don't say that facetiously. He was. He was like, great guy. Um, an amazing encourager of God's people. Goes with Paul. Goes through all this really hard stuff with Paul. He's, he's courageous and strong, but he's also soft and loving. They send the right guy to go look in on this. We're told that in the next verse. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. I'm so glad Barnabas was glad. <laughs> I'm so glad, right? Like he could have come and been like, I don't like what I see here. This is not cool. I don't think that this is what God has for us. And gone back to Jerusalem and said, you got to shut down the some of them. You got to shut down these guys. They're making a crazy new kind of church where they're trying to bring Jews and Greeks together. And I don't know if I'm about it. Now he's glad. He was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast steadfast purpose. It takes faithfulness and steadfast purpose to do this kind of work. It takes steadfastness. I'll talk about that in just a second. Why? Why was this his reaction? Look at verse 24. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. It takes steadfast purpose. It takes fullness of the Spirit. It takes a whole lot of faith. It takes just an essential goodness to stick with this kind of work. All right, and then I love what Barnabas does. (laughs) This is so good. Check out what he does. So Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Okay, so (laughs) so you got to realize what's happening here, right? Like the first multi-ethnic church is being planted. Jews and Greeks are now worshiping together. They're showing up on Sundays. They're showing up to small group. They're at each other's dinner tables. This is a new work. And what they need is, is, is good biblical gospel preaching in order to maintain that work. And Barnabas says, I got a guy, right? I got this guy, Saul. Who's Saul? Won't re-preach the whole life of Saul? Saul is, is a, a former big, big wig in the Jewish world. He's, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant scholar, but he has this radical conversion where Jesus quite literally knocks him off of his horse and says like, hey, you're persecuting me. That Saul was so zealous in his Jewish faith that he thought, let's go kill all those Christians. If they're that big of a threat, like let's round them up and let's kill them all. And Jesus is like, yeah, no. And he knocks him off the horse and he says like, you're persecuting me, man. Radical conversion, Saul is given an incredible amount of revelation to realize, oh, like Jesus is the fulfilling of actually everything we long for as a Jewish. He is the Christ. He is the one that we've waited for. What's fascinating is you have to ask the question, why is he in a place called Tarsus, which is a little hard to say. Why is he in Tarsus? If you know this, then you're like a real Bible person. But um, he's in Tarsus because after his conversion, he's, he's taken in by the church in Jerusalem. And he ends up, it says, he's arguing with not with the Jewish Christians, he's arguing with Hellenists. He's arguing with Hellenists. And it says explicitly, look, I can see on your faces, you don't believe me. If you go to, if you go to uh, Acts 9, verse 26, check this out. And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is, this is Saul, he attempted to join the disciples and they were afraid of him wouldn't you have been? Remember, the disciples are all early Jewish Christians. They're afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, it's our boy, 
and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among uh, the people at Jerusalem, the Christians at Jerusalem, they welcome him into community, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Hard to say. My man is in Tarsus because Greek people, Gentiles were trying to kill him for the message that he was giving. The first Gentile and Jewish church is now meeting and Barnabas, our boy, says, I know who a good pastor for this community would be. Isn't that wild? What's he doing? Think what he's doing is saying, yes, this new community needs the insight, the revelation, the power, the boldness, the courage of Saul. But you know what I think he's also saying? I think he's also saying Saul needs this community because he has been so hurt and wounded by this group that he might never believe that the gospel can be preached to them unless he gets proximate to them and sees the work of God among them. Because what's amazing is when Jesus knocks Paul off of his horse, knocks Saul off of his horse, I'll keep doing it. Do you know what he tells him? He tells him, he, he first of all says like, bro, I'm, I'm the real deal. Like I'm Jesus, you're persecuting me, I'm the Christ. But then he says, he commissions him to be the apostle to the, to the Gentiles. Have you ever thought about that? I thought about this so much this week. Isn't that weird? Saul is like a, like a first-class Jewish scholar. He's, he's sat under the teaching of, of, of the absolute finest uh, scholars of that day. He went to the Harvard of, of Judaism. That's for them, um, right? Like he, he's that dude. Jesus now has him on his team. Wouldn't you think that he would say, I'm commissioning you to be the apostle to the Jews? Doesn't that make sense to you? Doesn't that feel more strategic to you? You tracking with what I'm saying? Isn't this what we do? Oh, you're from there? You speak that language? You know those people? Go there, right? Which isn't a horrible strategy. I just don't know if it's God's strategy always. Instead, he says, you're gonna be the apostle to the people who will be hardest for you to understand, hardest for you. And do you know why? I don't think it's because that's a concept for all of us at all times, but God's doing a unique thing through Saul. He is showing the gospel. He's like putting all of the, the beauty and content of the gospel into this one life, such that, Saul later on says when he becomes, when he's known more as Paul, which by the way is a change from a very Jewish sounding name, Saul, to a very Gentile sounding name. That's what's going on there, which is crazy. Like even his fundamental identity change, he's like, yeah, I'm with the Gentiles. That's crazy. But what he says is, do you know why God saved me? Precisely because I was so off the rails about Jesus. So that no one could ever doubt that you are beyond the work of God. He says, me, the chief of sinners, God showed his perfect patience in saving me. So God's doing stuff through the life of this single man. And one of the things that he's doing is saying, you know what my gospel does? It doesn't send you where, where it's obvious. He doesn't send you to your own. He doesn't make your life more homogenous. But he's going to flip your categories, put you in some places where your heart will be expanded, where your understanding of God and who he is is expanded by encountering the other. No longer as enemy, but as brother and sister who are bound together by this one message, by this one worship of this one King, Lord, and Savior. Go with me forward to Galatians. It's about to get real. I'll warn you. 
All right. But when Cephas, that's Jesus' nickname for Peter, um, early apostle. By the way, you got to keep in mind, Peter has had his own experience with this whole thing. You know Peter's story in Acts? Um, again, if you do, I'm very impressed. If not, that's why I'm here, <laughs> to tell you Peter's story. <laughs> is, right? Peter's story is Jewish guy, grew up as a Jewish person, follower of Jesus. Jesus makes promises that Peter's going to have a huge role in the early Christian movement. But Peter, just like everybody else, decides, yeah, I think that this gospel is only for Jewish people. I think it's only for people who are culturally, linguistically, historically, ethnically like me. And God has to show up to, first he sends Peter to a tanner's house. He sends him to, to a pig farm, and, and which is like crazy for a Jewish person to go live at a pig farm. Then, then he sends him up on a roof of that pig farm one day, and he has this vision where the sheet comes down with all the stuff he's not supposed to eat as a Jewish person. And the voice of God says, what? Take and eat. Chow down, baby. Like it's, it's barbecue time, right? And Peter's like, yeah, I don't think I'm allowed to do that. Got us to do it three times. No, no, no. Things are different now. Things are different now. Things are, cultural barriers are coming down in this new gospel. Barriers are broken such that Jesus can be encountered across these things. Takes him three times. As if that's not enough, God then says, sends someone who, who says, is there a guy named Peter here? Yeah, like there's a, there's a Gentile uh, a soldier general guy who, who really wants to talk to him. This whole thing is like, what? Um, again, he's doing unique things through these first apostles. So Peter's like, yeah, cool, I'll come with you. He goes to the house of this guy named Cornelius. He preaches the gospel in a Roman soldier's home. Like we're at the pinnacle of Greekness, right? Like there's, there's, there's Rome flags all over the wall, right? And he preaches this gospel and these Gentile people, counter to everything Peter believes about the world, fall on their knees and receive the spirit of God. And it looks exactly like Pentecost. They have this little mini Pentecost in this home. And Peter goes, I think I get it now. Literally look back. He says, I think I get it now. I'm paraphrasing the Greek there, but that's basically what it says. He says, I think I get now that God doesn't show partiality, that this gospel is meant to move across ethnic boundaries. That Peter, it's about to get real. When Cephas came to Antioch, where's Antioch? First multi-ethnic church, everything that I was just talking about. Let me play the last 10 minutes. When Peter comes to Antioch, this is Paul speaking. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Uh-oh, what did he do? For before certain men came from James, that's the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was cool, man. He was like, I get it now. These are my people. These are my boys. These are my brothers and sisters. This is how I roll. This is how I do life. No longer with barriers up. All of them have been broken. I can eat, live, and be free because we're all united under this one gospel. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Anytime I read this, I always want to say, ain't no party like a circumcision party. Because <laughs> a circumcision party gets weird. Um, but no, 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 stay there, stay there, Pam. You can't make me go off it. Um, do you understand what's going on here? Peter's good, he gets it. He's living, he's living life in multi-ethnic community. He is embodying core identity number three like you can't imagine. Then a bunch of his old friends show up. A bunch of his old friends who have not been through the transformation that Peter has been through, who has not tasted this multi-ethnic church, who are suspicious of it, who don't have firsthand knowledge of it. 
And Peter goes from eating at their table. So much comes down to, with, to who you eat with. So much comes down to what our dinner tables look like. Who are you eating with, right? Peter goes, and all of a sudden he's, he's on team circumcision party. He's over here. Turns his back on all this beautiful work that God has done in his own life personally and in this cosmic way through the gospel of breaking down dividing walls of hostility. And it's like he walks from one table and on his way, he rebuilds. And then he sits down here and says, oh, I'm back to what's comfortable. And why does he do it? Because he's scared. What are they going to think? They're going to think I'm a sellout. They're going to think that I've given in. They're going to think that, I, that I'm not genuinely Jewish, that I've lost my Jewishness, that I've sacrificed it at the altar of, of this silly multi-ethnic thing that these people are trying to do. I won't ask for hands. Anybody resonate with that? When he came, he drew back and separated himself. This is actually language from the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's so intentionally used here because what the people of God were explicitly told to do was to draw back and separate themselves from the wicked nations that were around them so that God might actually maintain some semblance of a redemptive people in the midst of that. Now, they always didn't do this perfectly, but this was an explicit command of God. His command has fundamentally, diametrically changed. He now says, go into all the world, right? Baptizing, preaching the gospel to all nations. Peter goes from this table, he rebuilds the wall, and it's like the entire New Testament is done away with behind him. Now you can go, Pam. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. This is one of the most devastating verses, little, little clauses in the New Testament so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas says, man, if Peter's not in, I don't know if I should be in. If Peter thinks that maybe this whole Gentile thing, maybe we got it wrong, maybe it's, maybe it's causing us to sacrifice too much, maybe, it's called, maybe God's not pleased with us, Barnabas goes and sits at that same table. Look at this next verse. This is Paul, but when I saw that their conduct was what? Not, was not woke enough, was not, um, was not cool enough according to our cultural moment, right? Was not in line with what churches that get it do, right? No, no, no. What's it not in line with? It was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Can we settle once and for all? This is a gospel issue. I don't even know what people mean by that. But if you mean anything by that, something that comes with the word gospel, not instead with the truth of God, I think that we could say it's a gospel issue. It's not the gospel. It's a gospel. It flows from the, it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. He says, you were walking in line with the gospel. This is weird. This is out of step with the God. You are no longer moving to the beat of the gospel. That's how big of a deal. You are unpreaching the very gospel that is unifying peoples, he's saying. If you, though a Jew, I said to Cephas before him all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles? He's basically saying, like, you were getting it right. Don't pull back now. I know it's hard. I know it's scary. I know a lot of people are going to say a lot of stuff. Don't pull back now. Because it takes a steadfastness. It takes a fullness of the Spirit. It takes a courage. It takes a whole lot of faith to stay in this kind of work. 
We believe that God has put Jacob's well where he has put us because there is such beautiful diversity around us. Immigrant populations, white, black, Hispanic, Southeast Asian, East Asian, right? a little bit of everything. I'm leaving out a whole bunch, which is amazing, right? We're in one of the most unique places literally in the world. We believe that it is in step with the truth of the gospel to try and figure out what reconciled community among those groups looks like. I can tell you what we've learned in 12 years. I can tell you it's costly. It costs more to some than others, right? And it takes constant vigilance. I don't mind using that word. Because do you see what's here? First, what's here is Paul. We need Pauls. We need people, to use the words of another uh, great voice in this whole conversation, Shaniqua Walker Barnes, we need, we need people who are willing to, to do confrontational truth-telling, but to do it from a place of deep love. Do it from a place of deep love, rooted in the gospel, rooted in grace, but willing to say, hey, you're off on this, right? We need those voices. It takes a lot of courage to do that. We need Barnabases who are going to come and be glad that this is happening and celebrate it. And then we also need Peters. We need Cephas's, right? We need imperfect people <laughs> who don't get it all the time. Because you know what I see here? Do you see that Peter doesn't tuck tail and run? Do you see that he doesn't say, well, then fine, I'm out, right? All intents and purposes, every indication we get, he sticks. He's willing to hear the hard thing and to stay. We have... Uh, <laughs> Oh, I don't even know where to go with this. Look, there's a, kind of, there's a kind of resilience that this requires. I have almost certainly said, for almost every person in this room, something you did not like today. And I have almost certainly not said something you wish that I had said. Okay? I want to say that's okay. Right? And I'm begging you to allow that to be okay for me. Not because, not, not, not I want special privileges. I'm saying this has to be a shared culture where we are willing to hear hard things and to process that through the gospel and be willing to change. That goes for every single thing about being a Christian, right? It should count here. And just because there is a cultural conversation going on on Twitter or wherever that says, if your church says this, then your church believes all of these things. Would you ask us before you allow Twitter to define what we believe as a church because we care about this and have it in our core identities? Would you like ask your pastors, hey, such and such that I've never met who's seven states away, who doesn't even know what Jacob's well, where we are, says that you are gonna do this in six months because you preach this kind of sermon. Would you maybe hang around for six months and see if we go there, right? Also, I want to say, we need more truth-tellers. That terrifies me to say, right? Like, I am a white man with significant authority in this place, right? 
a lot of the hard truths are things that I have to be willing to hear. Because do you hear what happens here? The drift, the drift is always toward cultural majority culture. Majority culture, right? It's, that's always the drift. That's just how we work as people. Get a group of people together, whatever the dominant culture is, that's probably gonna win the day. Do you see that that's what's going on here? You have a multi-ethnic church where there is this shared power. Uh, you get the sense that it's a little bit of both. Now a, a big old Jewish crowd comes and what does Peter do? He, he drifts. He drifts, right? And he finds himself back in this. We are, right? And I don't like when people say this. We are a majority white church. We are. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. That's an objective fact. Majority is a thing and white is a thing, right? We are a majority white church. Where is our drift going to be? Our drift is going to be toward majority white culture. If you have never wrestled with, what does it mean to be white? I'm saying that's good work to do as a white person in this community. If it rankles you a little bit because you're like, I'm not white. I'm a little bit German and a little bit Irish, right? Like I get that. I get that. I understand that. At the same time, we've got to do a little work to understand what people mean when they say that. Because others of you, particularly non-white brothers and sisters, you know what it means to walk into a place that has a white culture to it. And if those of us who are actually most comfortable in that, who that's just the air we breathe, don't understand what that means and say, no, 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 culture's not a thing. Being white isn't a thing. Then we're back to this colorblind thing where we say culture doesn't matter. No, no, it does. Because culture can sometimes snuff out the work of the gospel. When we drift, we can rebuild walls that the gospel has torn down. This is a big deal. We've got to be willing to do that work. At the same time, white people, first of all, I'm white, okay? White is not a four-letter word. We are not here to shame the white people in this community. We're not. Strictly speaking, white is a five-letter word, right? Like, it's not a four-letter word. It's not the evil thing to be here. All we're asking you is, a lot of times, us white folks, we are just not as aware of the cultural garb that we wear. We're just not aware because no one has ever, has ever put it out in front of us, right? We're, we're like fish, just swimming in the sea, and you ask a fish, what's water? And they say, I don't know, what do you, what do you mean, what's water, right? Like, if you've never done that work, that's good work to do. Because I can guarantee you, your non-white brothers and sisters, they, they've already had to do that work. They've had to figure out how to navigate in spaces like these. So they're super aware of their cultural uniqueness. I'm not out to shame white people. Do you believe me? I'm really not. But as the majority culture here, we're the ones who are probably most prone to drift and say, oh, it'd be so much easier if... All of this, hear me, church. No single person is the most important person in all this. Jesus is the most important person. Right, like, that's, that's what, I remember one time that, that I preached on this and I said, what does is, what is, uh, multi-ethnic community take? That's what it takes. What does it make? It makes Jesus look beautiful. Do you notice I left out one sentence in Acts? Pam, would you go back to, to the Acts one, the very end of that passage? What's the last sentence? Can you read this out with me? And in Antioch, the disciples were first 
called Christians. Why are we told that? Because the world is watching people come together that are normally apart, and they're going, we need a name for this. Well, what's the name that we can give this? Well, what's making it possible? What's the source of it? What, are they, what, are they, what do they have in common? If they don't have culture in common, if they don't have ethnicity, if they don't have skin color in common, what do they have in common? Well, they sure love this Jesus guy. We'll call them Christians. What does life in multi-ethnic community make? If I could be so bold, it makes Christians. It makes Christians. It makes people who love Jesus in all the fullness. Because you know what multi-ethnic community does? I'll tell you some of the good parts of it. Some of the good parts are you're going to see God like you've never seen him before as other people bring experiences that are so distant from yours to bear on it. You're going to be exposed to, to global Christianity in a way that you never have before. You're also going to be called out on stuff that those near to you in all those ways, they don't necessarily see. And you're going to feel the challenge of that. You're going to hear preaching that pushes you beyond the bounds of what's comfortable to you, that calls you into some, some new nearness to Jesus by breaking some new frontiers in your faithfulness and obedience to him. Because we tend to preach similar things to similar people to us. And so it's good to sit under something that pushes us in those ways. You're also going to have, have personal relationships with people who, if they love you enough, will at times confront you to your face for your good. Because you know what happens to Peter? Peter actually gets to walk in the fullness of what Jesus himself told him he would be. I can't help but think without this confrontation, Peter does not become the rock of the early church that he was. He needed this confrontation. He needed to be called out on his drift. He needed a brother to look at him and to say, hey, don't forget where you've been. Don't forget the work that God has called you. I need brothers and sisters to do this for me. Because I can be really, I'll just be totally honest with you. I can be fearful. I was fearful getting up here today. And I need brothers and sisters who speak over me and say, don't forget. Don't forget what's at stake. Don't you rebuild those walls. Don't you rebuild what he's kicked down. Don't you undo all of the truth of the New Testament by rebuilding what Jesus has victoriously said. It's part of the freedom of the reconciliation that we have with one another. Amen? Amen. All of it. Uh, I'll say one other thing. Do you see why this takes vigilance? If Peter and Barnabas, can we, <laughs> can we not be the church that's arrived on this? Right? We haven't arrived on this, y'all. We haven't arrived on this. We haven't. We're going to keep doing this stuff. You're going to talk about it in 101. We're going to have a 201 in the fall. We might have all, all of us do. We need to be vigilant in this. If, if Peter and Barnabas, sweet Barnabas, none of us are Barnabas. Barnabas needed this, okay? Needed vigilance in this. What do we return to, though? Do we return to shame? Do we return to, I'm not good enough at this? Do we return to, um, some of us feel like this cultural conversation bypassed us, right? And now we're like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know all the terms. I don't know what people are throwing out, right? Do we, do we return to shame? Is that what moves us forward? No, no, no. Guys, we're Christians. We go to Jesus, right? Like where we all meet, should meet most often is at the foot of that cross. 
as sinners in need yet again of forgiveness and grace to move forward in this. That's why we end here.